welcome to today's episode. Today I'm reading Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Secret of the Sperm. This morning's subject is The Secret of the Sperm. Last December, hundreds of scientists met in Montreal and read their papers to each other, and after the entire world printed what they had to say. Fortunately for me, the Los Angeles Times carried it daily. I must confess everyone really fired me, but one in particular interested me. This scientist read a paper on the sperm. He said, The sperm remains as much a mystery today as it was when man first became curious about its nature. And then he made this little statement. The sperm somehow easily passes through the surface of an egg. Although the outside of the egg has no holes in it, either before or after fertilization. Well, that fired me. On the morning of the 19th of February, I was lying in bed quite early, thinking of this strange mystery of the sperm and wondering all about it. And suddenly I felt myself detached from this body. I was not in my room, but I was in a room, and the room was sealed. There was no entrance, no exit, just a sealed room. But as I entered it, it became alive. It became animated. Then I thought of my bed, my body, and in one moment I am back on my bed. Thought of another detachment. I'm in an entirely different room, but it's also sealed. How I got in I do not know, other than I simply imagined myself away from my body. I did not single out the room. The room was completely sealed. No entrance, no exit. Then I thought there are there are these unnumbered states of consciousness. You can't number them. You can liken each state to an egg, and every state remains just as the egg until fertilized, and the presence that fertilizes the egg is simply our consciousness. We must be in it to activate it, to animate it. You could this very moment single out any state and by the use of your imagination imagine that you're in it. You'd be in it. Think this very moment of your living room or any room in your house. Take an object, a familiar object in your room, and bring it as close as you can. If it's really here, well, then you can't be here in this room. As you become intense about it, concentrated on it, you are really where you are imagining yourself to be. For man, being all imagination, he must be where he is in imagination. Well, what have I done then? I've fertilized it. I've actually made it real. And in a way that I do not know, I'm going to go there. But now you will say, naturally, I'm going to go there today. It's my home. I use that only to illustrate a point. You can take any place, no matter where it is, any part of the world. If you did the same thing to it that you would now do to your home, you will find yourself compelled compelled to move across a bridge of incidents leading up to the fulfillment of that state. You don't devise the means, but there are so many little facets to this wonderful art of imagining. I'll tell you one to show you the danger. But if one wants one thing above all things in this world, and they are willing to sacrifice their moral ethical code, in fact every code, it also works. That's why I warned you in my last book could only acquaint you with the law and leave you to your choice and its risk. And I mean risk.
I call this lady a friend. She is a friend. I'm not here to judge anyone in the world. And she is my friend living in New York City. When she was a young girl, she was as poor as a church mouse. <clears throat> she had nothing. Her only claim to recognition was the fact she descended physically from the Adams, our president. And she was very proud of that fact. Very proud. But she had no money. The one thing she wanted above everything in this world was money. And I don't mean a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean money in the true sense of the word. To the disgust of her parents, she used to always pretend she had fabulous fortunes. She is not, may I say, a good-looking lady either in form or in feature. Nice in many other respects. But you could never accuse her of being a beautiful woman. But nevertheless, she dreamed this state and she simply wanted money. At a party one day, she met a young man just a few years her senior, he had money, multiple millions. She had nothing. She had a physical line leading to the atoms. She had, he, excuse me, he had oodles of money. His line led to one of the bishops of New York State. I'm not saying this to be in any way, or I'm not saying this in any way to discourage you in your admiration of some bishop or some man of the cloth. But his grandfather was a bishop in New York State. He knew all the lovely parcels of, well, real estate. Well, tomorrow, if he could hold on to it, what well, it would be worth. And so he's a bishop of the church. Instead of taking care of his flock, he was taking care of his pocket. And he left millions to this man's father, who in turn left it to him. <clears throat> My friend only wanted money. And so in no time flat, they got married and then lived for 21 years in intimate hostility, really sordid beyond measure. I wouldn't dare discuss it from the platform. So at the end of these 21 years, they called it a day and divided the millions. She still wanted more millions. She could open Tiffany with her diamonds and her jewelry. She wanted more. She had a little cousin who always worked for a salary. But he got in on the ground floor when our huge big operation of the day were being organized. Saved his money. He was a bachelor. He lived alone and very frugal. And he bought a little bit of, his, of this stock. A little bit of that. Never touched it. It split and split and split and split. Year before last, he had the presence of mind to die. The only member of his family that would ever see him was his lady. She knew in some strange way he had money. She would bring him home from an occasional dinner, would call him on the phone, so when they found his will, she was the only member of the family named in the will. <clears throat> he, had other he had other first cousins, but they were above it all. They came from the Adams, and he must be on the outside or something. He was not what they would cultivate. When the will was read, my friend and my friend alone got it. The last estimate, they're still finding it, he put in his bank, in that box, in the other box. Well over a million, the stocks and bonds are worth. And she got it all. Now her cousins aren't speaking to her because she got it. The price she paid for money, I hope that no one here will be willing to pay. She could have had all the millions she now has, plus happiness. So she could have, if she only knew the law. You want it, but you condition it. <clears throat> you want it with dignity. 
that statement of Milliken. I have a lavish, steady, dependable income consistent with integrity and mutual benefit. That's our great Milliken. He was a very, he was a poor boy too, and he grew tired of his poverty. And the story is told me by the one who interviewed him after he got the prize, the Nobel Prize, in this Cosmic Rays studio. And he said to her, the interviewer, I was a poor boy raised in a nice environment. My father was a traveling minister. He had no money, but he gave us good books. We were always playing games, a strong body and a strong mind. But he had a code, a decent code. And so I wanted money, and I wanted it in this manner. So I locked, my, I locked myself in a room one day, did not have even a glass of water for 16 hours. <clears throat> and in that interval, I repeated over and over and over to myself this thought that I wrote out. I have a lavish, steady, or I, I have in the present tense, I have a lavish, steady, dependable income consistent with integrity and mutual benefit. While he certainly earned it, he had all these things when he died. He had the respect of the world. He gave to the world as much or more than, he, than they gave to him. Yes, he had millions, but look what he gave to the world. That's how he wanted it. My friend could have done something similar, but no, she wanted money. And she was willing to pay the price, any price, and how she has paid it. <clears throat> so I warn you, yes, you want something, and the thing that will fertilize it is your own wonderful human imagination. But to get exactly what you want, occupy it. I find one of the great fallacies of the world is perpetual construction, deferred occupancy. <clears throat> we know what we want, but we leave it out there and hope that the passing of time will make it. It won't do. I have to occupy it and make it there here. I make then now and dwell in it just as though it were true. If I dwell in it just as though it's true, though one second later the phone rings and breaks the spell or someone calls me or I wake from it, I have fertilized it. You go into the state and you fertilize it. You may not recognize my harvest when it comes in due season. It will come. It may not come tonight, it may not come tomorrow, but it will come because I fertilized it. I went into a state, occupied it, and the whole thing becomes fertilized. <clears throat> For every egg has its own appointed hour, and it ripens and it will flower. If to me it seemed long, then I must wait, for it is sure and it will not be late. These infinite states of the world are waiting for occupancy, waiting to be fertilized by us. That's why we must become so extremely discriminating. Know what you want and do make it conform to your code of decency, your wonderful ethical code. You don't have to in any way tarnish that code. You don't, to get what you want in this world. But men are not aware of that and they're quite willing to tarnish it a bit to get what they really want in this world. So here, the secret of the sperm is God's creative power. Now don't be shocked if I tell you that that sperm is only the symbol of Jesus Christ, for by him all things are made, and without him there is not anything made that is made. 
In him is life. There is no other life. In him is life. Well, if I go into a place and suddenly it becomes animated, then I must be he. Prior to that, I thought he was on the outside, in some other place. And suddenly I find myself in a room and the room is sealed. Well, how did I get into it? You're told in the scripture he suddenly appeared among the disciples after the resurrection and the door was closed. That's a cue given to all of us. It's not a man. It's a supernatural power in man. That supernatural power is your own wonderful human imagination. If you're willing to believe it, you could today set out to transform your entire world. But above all things, become extremely selective. Don't just compromise. Don't. Extremely selective. The state is there. The tarnished state is there. And the untarnished state is there. Everything possible is there. Why do we read these words in in scripture? He has made everything for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. If there were no wicked in the world, then creation isn't complete. I don't have to be wicked, but the state is there. I could enter the state and be as wicked as the state allows. I am not the state. I am the fertilizing power animating and making alive that state. That's why Blake said in his wonderful vision of the last judgment, I do not consider either the just or the wicked to be in a supreme state, but to be every one of them, states of the sleep, which the soul may fall into in its deadly dreams of good and evil. It falls into these states unwittingly. You, knowing the law, don't fall into a state unwittingly. I know the state knowingly. Go right into it if you want to animate it and make it real. And you go into a state not just for yourself alone, but for your family, your friends, your, well, anyone in this world, and just leave it. After you have fertilized it, what can you do? Let it grow. Fertilize the egg. Don't tamper with it. Just let it grow. Or you'll single out a state today, the state of consciousness. You enter and you enter it and clothe yourself with it and let it grow. When I exhausted every human channel to get out of the army, I turned to the only God in the world. And that God is my own wonderful human imagination. In 1942, in the month of December, this direction came down from Washington, D.C. Any man over 38 is eligible for discharge, providing his superior officer allows it. If his superior officer, meaning his battalion commander, disallows, there's no appeal beyond his battalion commander. You could not take it, say, to the divisional commander. It stops with the battalion commander. This came down in 1942 in the month of December. They gave a deadline on it. This will come to an end on March the 1st of 1943. So anyone 38 years old before March the 1st, 1943 was eligible. All right, that is Caesar's law. I got my paper, made it out. They had my record, my date. I was born in 1905 on the 19th of February. So I was 38 years old before the 1st of March in 1943. So I was eligible. Turn it into my battalion commander, who was Colonel Theodore Bilbo. His father was a senator from Mississippi. I turned it in, and four hours it came back disapproved, 
and signed the colonel's name. That night I went to sleep in the assumption that I am sleeping in my apartment house in New York City. I didn't go through the door. I didn't go through the window. I put myself on the bed. I went right into my home that I knew so well, but I conditioned it. I could be there on furlough, a two-week furlough. <clears throat> Excuse me, I didn't want that. I wanted to be there honorably discharged, not dishonorably, honorably discharged, and a civilian in this country. So I slept in that assumption. At 4, 4.15 in the morning, here came before my inner eye a piece of paper, not unlike the one that I had signed that day. On the bottom of it was disapproved. Then came a hand from here down holding a pen, and then the voice said to me, That which I have done, I have done. Do nothing. It scratched out disapproved and wrote in a big bold script, approved. And then I woke. I did nothing. Nine days later, that same colonel called me in. He said, Close the door, Goddard. Yes, sir, he said. Do you still want to get out of the army? <clears throat> I said, Yes, sir. He said, you're the best-dressed man in this country who wears the uniform of America. And I said, yes, sir. You still want to get out of the army? Yes, sir. He asked him to death as I sat before him. He said, all right, make out another application and you'll be out of the army today. I went back to my captain, told him what the colonel had said, made out another application, and he signed it. And that day I was out of the army honorably discharged. That's all that I did. I went right into my home as a discharged soldier of our army, and I am a civilian. I slept that night in my home in New York City, though physically my body was in Camp Polk, Louisiana. That's how it works. There was a state. I entered the state and fertilized it. No one was hurt, and the colonel, <clears throat> when I went through the door that evening, he came forward and he said, well, good luck, Goddard. I will see you in New York City after we have won this war. I said, yes, sir, and that was it. I share this with you to tell you how it works. This is not good, and that is wrong. We're living in a world of infinite possibility. You become discreet. You become selective. You know what you want. You hurt no one, but you must turn to God, and God is your own wonderful human imagination. Choose this day whom you will serve. And they answered, We choose the Lord. You are witnesses against yourself that you may have chosen the Lord. We are witnesses against ourself, for the Lord's only name is I Am. Well, he was actually assuming that he was, in his own apartment 2,000 miles away. I Am. I am assuming I am, or physically I am not. But the reality of me is not this. The reality of this speaker is his imagination. And I must be where I am in imagination. So the body was in Camp Polk. The reality of me was in that apartment of mine in New York City. You will take this story and multiply it thousands of times. But here, while you are here, I would like to make it so clear that you and you alone are responsible for your own selection. I can teach you the law. That's the law in a nutshell what I've just told you, but I cannot get behind you and say, no, not that, take this. I can't guide your ship. I must leave you to your choice and warn you it carries a risk unless you take your wonderful code and surround it. 
Take your choice and make it fit your lovely moral and ethical code. You will not have to compromise. So this is the secret of the sperm. You aren't going to find it under the microscope. You aren't going to see it through. It is all imagination. This whole vast world that seems so real and solid and independent of our perception of it is all within our imagination. And so you single out the state that you want to activate. You go in under that state and know it as yourself and it becomes alive. Then you return to whatever you're doing in the world of Caesar and that egg has been fertilized. And in a way that you do not conscious, know it consciously, it will simply develop, break the shell and come forward as a fact in our life. You try it today with a friend, a friend in need, someone who has no job or needs more income because of obligations. Try it. And you need not tell them what you've done it. Leave them alone and have the satisfaction of seeing your friend with a nice job and making more money. Do it with everything in this world because you have the power and the right. The power is your imagination. Paul describes Jesus Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. For this is not. This is creative power. Because here is a man who has all the power in the world. He can say no from now until the war is over. So when it happened to me in nine days, I wrote a friend of mine who was my age. He was just as eligible, and I wrote him and told him what I had done. He never answered my letter. He's a Freudian. By Freudian, I mean he studied with Freud. He was steeped in the so-called facts of life based upon sex. He knew nothing of this higher level. So I told him what I had done. He got out when the other millions got out after the war because he used to come to my meetings in New York City. And he said, you know, Neville, I like hearing, I like listening to your talks. But you know what I do? I hold the seat and put my feet right down into the carpet to keep my sense of the reality and the profundity of things. You take me out of this reality, you mustn't do that. So he likes the reality. He was in the army, he wanted to get out and couldn't. And I am unreal, and I got out. So I'm sharing with you the, re the real reality. If Freud only knew of these intensities of creation, on higher levels compared to this level here, well, you can't. These incredible intensities on the highest level, when you're creating, and you will create all within yourself, you do don't divide an image. They're to create. It's all within yourself. And compared to this level, or this level is like simply, well, two out of season slugs, that's this level. But on the higher level, it's all intense, fantastic creations. And there you see the vortices that bind man on his body. There you see unnumbered. You could never count the unnumbered vortices that ran creation. And there they are gathering intensity or rather density to make what 11 or to make what they are gathering apparent in this world. They are already apparent at the higher levels, but to make them apparent here, they gather density. So here in a very simple way, imagining creates reality in the most minute form. There isn't a thing in this world that is now real to us that was not once only imagined. 
So today, start controlling your imagination and do not entertain even the idle thought because no one sees it. Read the 8th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. They thought no one saw it too. It says, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are doing? Everyone in his own chamber of imagery. And they say no one sees us. The Lord has turned from us. There's no Lord on the outside of him. You know what you're doing. That's the Lord seeing. He knows exactly what you are doing because you and he are one. God became man that man may become God. So the house of Israel said, Let us go into our chamber of darkness with all of these abominations and create because the Lord doesn't see us, has forsaken us. They forgot the Lord. The Lord is your own wonderful human imagination, and there is only one Lord. So you sit in the silence for a moment, and you think, well, I can't be seen. can't imagine unlovely things about that one, the other one. Don't for one moment think the Lord doesn't see it, because you see it, and you know he, and you, and you, and he, I'm going to read that again, sorry. Um, What did, okay, so, I can imagine unlovely things about that one, the other one. Don't for one moment think the Lord doesn't see it, because you see it, and you and he are one. And he is creating at that very moment, and you're bringing out of your own leaf the things that you are fertilizing. Now, about a week ago, I suggested a certain technique that I learned from my old friend, Abdullah. Sitting physically in one place and assuming that I am physically seated in another place. And I go from place to place. After a while it becomes so easy. And then you can open your eyes at the place where physically you really are not. And when you do so, you open that eye with a shock. If I am seated in a big chair in my living room and imagine I'm seated in the bedroom. When I want the shock, I open my eye while I'm imagining I'm seated in the bedroom. If I open my eye when I imagine I'm seated in the living room, where the body was in the beginning, there's no shock. But there's a shock to open your eyes where the body is not because it seems so real to you. And this is how you experience or exercise this talent. Go into any state. So in essence, this being the last day, I brought you many things I have heard and experienced in the last year. Bringing stories of my friend Krucha, stories of others, my own, but really the base hasn't changed. I can't change the base. The base is still imagining creates reality, that God and man are one. And all that we behold, though it appears without, it is within our own imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shell. So when one takes off this little garment, where are you going to go? They are the only reality in the world in their imagination. And they live in a world of imagination. And the day will come, they'll take it off on this level forever. For they'll rise completely into an imaginative world where everything is subject to their imaginative power. So here this is educated darkness for the purpose of learning how to create. And you aren't being judged if you create something unlovely. But create. But why create something unlovely when you know you could, in some wonderful way, still get your goal and put it into a lovely frame? You need not take away your wonderful ethical code. 
within the framework of your code, you can put your picture so you will never be ashamed of what you have, you've accomplished. So many today in this world, they wouldn't discuss how they got what they have. They wouldn't. They are ashamed of it. So if you have a goal like Milliken, take Milliken's wonderful statement and repeat it over and over until it becomes a part of you. That's all that he did, so he told my friend, and things opened for him. He was the one person who could see there was a potential in the study of cosmic rays, and so he devoted himself to it. And while he gave his all to that, the world was looking at him, and then money started pouring into him. So he died a noble soul, one that was honored. And anyone he left behind, like his sons, his daughters, and those related to him, are proud of the fact that they had a man called Milligan, who was part of their physical descent. Are there any questions, please? Someone asked, now, boy, you tell us that we play all the parts. In my present state of consciousness, I would not want to play the part of the violent person. Do we escape that with our own understanding? The question is, if we play all the parts, can we escape playing the violent part? Mr. Goddard says, my dials say the violent part is being played by God. And you are God, and you and God are one. You learn eventually to play it more beautifully as we would avoid certain notes on the piano. But don't destroy the note. You need it for some other piece you're going to play. You can take a discord and resolve it into a dissonance. dissonance. If I took the note from that piano that caused discord in the hope, I would never make another discord. I can't play the piano. So everything must be present, including violence. Judges in the 10th chapter of Isaiah Behold the Euthyrin. The staff in his hand is the rod of my anchor. He uses everyone to bring to pass what man is miscreating. Yes? Yes, but you can avoid it if you know and don't activate that. Mr. Goddard says, Certainly, my dear, but there was no other being to play the part. If I select to play the part of the horrible beast of the world, God and I are one, therefore God is playing the part. He submits himself to my choice because he became me, that I may be as he is. He is infinite love, but while I am asleep, he plays the sacrificial part of playing the parts I select. So it is only God that plays all the parts. That's a sacrifice, as told us in the 53rd of Isaiah. Put all things upon, put all things upon his back. Another person asks a question, but it's inaudible. And Mr. Goddard replies the question here. Uh, another inaudible question. Uh, Neville replies the question. And then uh, another person says, Oh, you have taught us that in a 6,000-year span that we play all of the parts. And Neville says, Yeah. Um, the person says, In my present state of consciousness, I would like to avoid the violent parts. And Neville says, in the 6,000 years, the question is this, I have taught you to believe that the journey takes 6,000 years. As Blake said, I behold the visions of my deadly sleep of 6,000 years, dancing around the ice skirts like a serpent of precious stones and gold. I know it is myself, O oh my creator and redeemer. So if 6,000 years is the length of the journey, and within that six. All parts are being played. Can I avoid these horrible parts? Certainly. But in our ignorance, we play them. We fall into them. 
you will give a banquet one day, a messianic banquet everyone will give, and you will see a sea of human imperfection, and you will redeem them. You're play, you've played the blind, the halt, the withered, everything. They're all waiting for you to walk by. As you walk by, all are molded into perfection, for they were garments that you played. And they are now invited to Messiah, Messiah's banquet because you have risen from it all. You see, you are something infinitely greater than any being you see in this world. You are a supernatural being who is God playing these parts. The actor is not Hamlet. The actor goes home and leaves Hamlet in the closet. Any other questions, please? And someone asks, could you tell us again the breathing techniques? Neville says, will I tell you again the breathing technique? I find if I call before my mind's eye what I would like to activate, and I make it so that it really thrill, thrills me, a conversation between two friends, discussing the fulfillment of their dream, which is my dream for them, and then you breathe in and you breathe out. Your inhale and exhale is a complete personal thing. I can't give you the numbers. You don't do it once, twice, or 50 times. It's entirely up to you to breathe in and breathe out while you are listening to this conversation and bring yourself to the limit of a thrill. Then when, with one deep inhalation, your whole body explodes. Every little atom seems to open, and something goes out. As you are told in scripture, who has touched me, for I perceive virtue has gone out of me. You touched it on the inside. You made it real and you exploded. It comes with the last inhalation. But this is something that is very personal. You must try it. If two are working on the same thought from different angles, I mean from different understanding of teachings, will this in any way modify or change the final outcome? Would it lengthen the time? Neville says, if two are working from different angles, and the person says, yes, Mr. Goddard, for common goal for someone else. And the person says, common goal, yes. Mr. Goddard says, no, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. I have friends who will call me and ask me to hear good news for them. I know from their own confession, in the past, they haven't broken that little trick, but they want to be sure. So they call their Christian science practitioner. Their unity practitioner, science of mind practitioner. They call all of the practitioners in the hope that one is going to hear it. Mr. Goddard says, a complete absence of faith on the part of the one who wants the help. And someone says that this was not, and it's inaudible, and I believe, again inaudible, that what you teach. Neville says, my teaching is not based upon theory. I do not sit down to work out a workable philosophy of life. My teaching is based upon the experience of scripture. I've experienced scripture, and scripture is not the product of human wisdom. It's not. It's revelation. But unnumbered isms in the world, brilliant minds, wonderful minds, they have sat down and gathered themselves together to work out what they consider the right path. And so all these isms are based upon just human wisdom. The Bible is not human wisdom. In its search for the meaning of life and for God, the human mind could never have conceived of the story of the gospel. Never could have conceived it. It is something that was revealed to man. And Paul said, I did not hear it from a man, nor was I taught it by a man. But it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He unveils himself in you as you. And you've been looking for him on the outside all through the centuries. And suddenly it happens.
and it's so different in prospect from when it comes to be seen in retrospect. After it's happened to you, well, then you know. So my teaching is not speculation. I'm not theorizing. I'm telling you what I know from experience. And it is all scripture. Of course, the world thinks they've outgrown scripture. They will say what? That's an old book, a myth. That belongs to the dead ages. They'll get something new, and so they'll get something new. You'll find other isms springing up, too, all over the world. Um, another person says, is your system a system that can be used to work for translation, spiritual translation? Neville says, did you hear the question? Is this system a system that can be used towards spiritual translation? You cannot in any way hasten your spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity is a gradual state from a God of tradition to a God of experience. You can't possibly, by not eating certain things, or by eating certain things, or by attending certain classes, or not attending certain classes, in any words, hasten your spiritual growth. It is coming. What you can do with this principle, that's why I call it both the law and a promise. The promise comes first. The law comes 400 years later. 400 is a cross, as long as I wear it. And so he gives me a law to cushion the blows while I wait for the promise of the Father. And the promise of the Father is to give me himself as though there were no other, just God the Father. But all of these translations and these ex extrasensory perceptions and all these things, they don't interest me really. What would it matter? UCLA, three weeks ago, they gave a little weekend group. They charged $100 for three days, and they had, I think, five speakers. It was crowded to the gunnels. Over 500 attended the class at UCLA. And not one man on that panel, not one, is a man of vision. In his present state, a vision would scare him to death. But he knows all about extrasensory perception and talks about it learnedly. But I have always maintained there is an awful lot of learned ignorance in this world. Any other questions, please? Someone says, Neville, my attendance here at your lecture this year was spoiled by the fact that I went into the hospital last week and stayed there for five days. Now, all of the times in the world to go to the hospital. I certainly didn't plan it this time, I don't think. But you have told us that we do not recognize our own harvest. Now, my question is this, to keep us from reaping the un these unwanted harvests, how do we make ourselves more conscious to ourselves? Neville says, well, I would not say this is actually your answer, but many a person coming to my meetings over the years, I started on the 2nd of February, 1938, and it has been an unbroken series since from coast to coast. They have come to my meeting, and, term and my terminology differs from theirs. I speak of Jesus Christ more intimately. I bring him down and close the gap between Christ and myself. I treat him as my own wonderful human imagination, filled with love. That shocks people. They go out at that moment never to hear me again. And if they can possibly say to someone else, don't go and hear him, they will. I'm not saying in the interval that you've been coming here. I didn't say something that annoyed you. And you turned your back that night with a little pledge. Why go and hear him? So when you wanted most to hear me, you go to the hospital. Mr. Goddard, that's how it works. Er, Neville says, that's how it works. It would be nice if you went to the hospital when you wanted to go. 
but I'm here for a short interval. I'm not saying you did it. And then the, um, and then the audio for the lecture stops there. Okay, so that is the end of Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Secret of the Sperm. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode, and I will see you guys next time. Have a wonderful day.